Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also available for free in iTunes or at thejazzsession.com, where you'll also find the Facebook group, the Twitter feed, uh, RSS links. You can email me from there. You can join the mailing list. And you can do two other things, both of which support the show financially. One is uh, that in the show notes to every show, you'll find an Amazon.com link to purchase generally an MP3 download of the album. Uh, if you click on that link and buy the artist's record, or actually if you click on that link and buy anything at all, a small portion of the proceeds goes back to this program, which I appreciate. You'll also find a donate button there. The show is free, but if you want to give a little back, you can just use the donate button. It's safe and secure and uh, much appreciated by me. My guest today is Eric Deutsch. Here's the title track from his new album, Hush Money. My guest is pianist, keyboardist Eric Deutsch. He's got a new album out called Hush Money, and uh, it's my pleasure to have you here, Eric. Thanks for being on the show. Hey, pleasure is all mine. Thanks for having me. This, uh, this album really sounds to me kind of like the, the soundtrack to a movie I'd like to see. It's, uh, oh, it, it just it seems uh, both it's full of groove and you know kind of uh, that end of the spectrum, but it has a really cinematic quality to it. Is that is that just my reading, or is there some of that in there? I know you've you've recorded other albums that kind of lean in that direction. You know, I think that um, that uh, that's 
just what comes out when I write music, you know. And, and I think that a lot of people say that, and I'm I um I've heard it and I and I believe it. You know, it's, it's not intentional, but it's just how it is. So yeah, I think you're on the right track there. Can you talk about the intention of this record? Did what were you shooting for when you when you conceived this album, which is is very unique? Talk about okay. that. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. First of all, that's a, that's a nice compliment, and um, I think that uh, okay, when I you know when I went to make this record, I wanted to make a record that sounded kind of uh, kind of maybe gritty and and definitely like a little bit retro. Um, and I, I think always, you know, when I, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in, in sonic, you know, exploration and, and, and sounds and tones and all that kind of thing. And so I've, I've said it, uh, you know, I've said it a lot before. It's like I didn't want to set out to make a, just a typical sounding jazz record, you know, but rather something that, that was a little bit, a little bit of ear candy, um, for the listeners. And, um, so, so that that was kind of the foundation of, of how we were going to approach the songs and and how I found the studio. I chose a studio that we could put onto tape, right? And um, so a studio that had a good tape machine, and then and that, um, also a studio that that didn't have the, the piano in the studio is not a great piano, so it's not a studio that had, had a you know an eighty thousand dollar instrument in there, but something rather kind of, a little bit of a beater, a lot of character. You know, a um, little squirrely in the, on, the, on the tuning kind of situation, but I thought that might add to the uh, to, to the the, uh, the ambiance, you know, and the sound of the record. Will you explain to folks what what going to tape means, and both why you chose it and how it differs from how most albums are recorded nowadays? Yeah, good question. Um, recording to, going to tape, you know, it just refers to recording actual to a to directly to a two inch analog tape. Uh, Real tape, like is what most people would know it as. Um, and there, you know, there were different sizes. There was a quarter inch was like your typical reel to reel in your home or your home stereo. And I guess half inch and in, in inch tape. There are half inch machines and things. The bigger the tape, the more information that can be stored on it. And thus, the two inch tape was kind of the standard in recording studios for many many years. Um, is the uh, 24 track multi track, uh, the size if you want to do 24 multi tracks. Does that make sense? It does. And and why did you okay. choose to go to tape? Um, when you record on tape, things are um, you got a few few big differences. One is, is sound quality. It's going to sound uh, uh, beefy in the, in the bass and the drums, especially. You're going to get and also some kind of natural compression that comes out of so we don't get too technical. It's just going to sound like it's going to sound like an old Led Zeppelin record rather than a Guns N' Roses record, or not Guns N' Roses, rather than a, a Coldplay record. Okay, in terms of in terms of the the, the bass and the drum, the way they sound, adds a lot of character. I think with acoustic instruments, um, in terms of you, you just have it's just a warmth to recording on tape that um, that that is replaced by a sparkle when you record digitally on a computer. And uh, both are nice, and both are totally viable. And, and what's happening a lot these days is that people are mixing and matching. Right. Maybe doing a little bit to tape and then doing the rest to, uh, on the computer or maybe uh, recording digitally and then putting all the digital tracks onto a tape, running them through that, so you at least get some tape somewhere in the, in the process. Um, 
to me, I just as part of what I said, um, a, a typical sounding jazz record. I, I, I thought this would sound grainier, it would sound grittier. Uh, there's hiss, there's warble, you know, where the tape kind of moves and things sound a little squirrely, uh, pitch wise. Um, there's crackle, you know, so all, all the things that kind of add, 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 add a, a retroness and maybe a little bit of nostalgia, you know, a little extra nostalgia to the music or something like that. Following up on that, when I uh, uh-huh. when I first got into rock music, the kind of rock I first listened to was progressive rock, and to my ear, it sounds like there are some keyboards on this record that would have been right at home in a lot of the bands that I listened to uh, yeah. back in the day. Are there some Are there some vintage <laughs> vintage keys on this album? Yeah, there sure are, man. There are. <laughs> I've had I've, I've been collecting vintage keyboards, I guess, since I was a teenager, and especially after I joined. Um, or started this band Fat Mama when I went to college in Colorado. I started getting keyboards, and one of the first ones I bought was the Moog Source. And the Source is a, a keyboard made by Moog from the early, early 80s. And I remember I bought that thing, and I didn't even know why. And, I, and my parents were like, what, what the hell are you going to do with that thing? You know? And I didn't even know how to use it, but I had a feeling that I needed it, that I wanted it, and it would be useful. And sure enough, that that turned out to be something that I used a ton when I was younger and um, in some ways maybe became a little bit of a signature sound, right? So I, I have that thing, and that's on the record. I do a big solo on that on the, the Get Out While You Can song, and I think I played some bass on it on Quitting Time. You know, so I used it in some different spots. Um, around that time, back in when I was in college, I also bought an ARP Omni, which is kind of strings kind of a, an analog string machine with a little synthesizer mixed in there. And that's on the record. Um, and for about I, 15 years, that was on every record that came out. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a good thing. It's yeah. A <laughs> um, what else is on the record? I use I used some old Casio tones that I've had forever. One of them I've had since I was, like, in third grade. <laughs> um, I played Whirly and Hammond. Those were in the studio. But we're, are super common, you know, in, in the kind of music you describe. Uh, and, 
Um, what else? What else do I use? Um, I, I think it may have, oh, maybe, yeah, maybe I do the one that Casio's Moog Arp Whirly Organ Piano. I think that's what we did. Eric, will you talk about uh, the the orchestration of this record? It's just that to me is one of the freshest things about the album is uh, the really intelligent use of the different instruments that each player was able to bring. I, obviously, Mike McGinnis plays everything he can get his hands on. It sounds like, and uh, uh-huh. there's bassoon on the record. Can you talk a little bit about ha- how much of that was kind of before you went into the studio? You thought these are the colors that are going to be on this palette, and how much kind of happened? as you were orchestrating things that you'd already partially recorded? Well, um, you know, I was fortunate that this is this is a band that actually works, uh, you know, and was, had played together a number of times before the studio, which isn't always the case, you know, in New York. And it wasn't the case in my last album where I kind of met, you know, the band met, it, 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 it figured out a sound in the studio. Um, but since we'd done, you know, played for about a year probably and done a bunch of gigs, kind of I had a pretty good sense of, of what people can do, you know, some of these people are my old friends, so I have a really good sense of what they can do. Uh, but I think I, I um, before the studio, I did sit down and kind of map out um, some different ideas of how of, of instrumentation, especially for McGinnis, like which which horns would work well on which track. Yeah, and um, there are, and I also thought of spaces. You know, where can I feature the bassoon? Where and and, and wrote so some so some of this stuff was premeditated. And I did, I do like to go into the studio with a plan, kind of a map of each song. But, of course, once you're in there, things change. And I think with Mike, you know, we tried, you know, we might have tried something here and there. Or maybe I suggested, why don't we try this? And then we tried and maybe he said, well, why don't we try this? You know, so, so I'm always open to these guys. I mean, of course, if these guys, you know, uh, uh, anyway, they know better than I do about what's going to sound good with their instruments. So I just, I have my ideas and then we them off them. Um, and uh, so for some of the other orchestration, I mean, the keyboard, the synthesizer stuff all happened afterwards, and a lot of the guitar parts, too. So that stuff um, was, was, was post-studio you know, post in, in the kind of in the mixing and editing phase, you know, in the, in the, the overdubbing. So I think that some of, a lot of the orchestration did come from that, um, from that phase. And uh, and there were some things, you know, where we where we did some uh, through editing we orchestrated. Um, I know in the middle of Hush Money, in the middle of that song, which is the first song, there's a drum breakdown, and it was just drums originally, and then it ended up having some some floating horn chords over it with some echoplex explosions, things like that. So we kind of sculpted this section. We we took horn chords from a totally different section. And put them through my echoplex, you know, to give them some crazy sound, and then and then floated them over top of this drum thing, you know, with some explode, some tape echo explosions, and, and, and so on. If you, if you get my drift, so we did do some orchestration after that.
Yeah, it sounds like, uh, and this is not an original description to me, but it sounds like using the studio as an instrument, as an additional instrument. Well, yeah, I guess so. You know, I guess you have to, and uh, or or at least you might as well. It's part of the fun of it, right? And if you're and if you're in the stu- a good sounding studio and, and you know exploring what that studio can offer to the record, and then once again having the opportunity to to uh, work at at home and, and mix, uh, you know, and take your time mixing at especially a friend's house who happens to be right down the street, you know, we, that, that, that allowed you to take a lot of time to really get into what you can do and, and after you leave the tracking room. Yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You, uh, you mentioned the band Fat Mama, and I know some of the, the people on this record are alumni of that band. Will you talk a little bit about that and actually maybe uh, the kind of Colorado genesis of what you're, what you're doing these days? Yeah, sure. Well, I went to school in Boulder. I was from D.C. and I just wanted—I just wanted to go west. You know, I was like, a, the West Coast represented something, something exciting. You know, something different. And uh, headed out to Boulder and pretty quickly met some folks that were in the music school with me, and and they knew some folks that weren't in the music school. And we uh, made this band, and it was like a party band. But there was something, there was something just good about it, and that and that we could all really play. And we also had. We had some pretty modern ideas. I think we were listening to modern music. So we had Jonathan Goldberger on guitar, and he's the one who plays on my record and, and, and mixed the record and helped me produce it. Um, we had John, Joe Russo on bass, on drums, excuse me. Joe Russo is a drummer, and he had, had this band called The Duo with Marco Benevento for a while that people know. And he's played, Joe's done a lot of great gigs, and he's currently the drummer for The Further, which is like The Grateful Dead. I guess. Yeah. It's <laughs> what <laughs> pretty much. So, um, Joe's doing great. Um, there were some other great musicians, Fred Joseph, John Gray, and they don't, they're not, they're not living in New York, they're, but they're still playing. And, um, and then Jossie Simon, who plays bass in, on Hush Money, was the, the, eventually the bass player in Fat Mama. Not the first one, but the, for most of, the, of our run, he was. And we were, um, you know, just a, kind of an, an aggressive young, you know, like, just a fired up bunch of dudes, and we had a bunch of ideas, and we played well, and, and we and we took our thing out of bars and started. We sold out, you know, the venues in Boulder, and made our mark in Denver, and then and hit the road, and then went all over the place, and made a bunch of records, and spent a lot of time, and in New York, and, and, uh, and the East Coast, and, and the South, and we really had a good thing, and really hit the road for about. For, we had a six year run, and we were on the road hard for three years, and so tell us. Got a, got a bunch of my chops, you know, my road chops and my, my books and you know, publicity and managed ourselves and kind of learned a lot about music from that band. Um, also, uh, the Colorado connection, you know, like just made, I think, through that band kind of got to know, you know, made it to market the Colorado scene and, and then eventually played with all kinds of folks out in Colorado and, and even during that time played with a lot of different people. Um, also, uh, by taking everything on the road, you know, we met a lot of different people out on the road, and, and uh, our bassist, Jonty, was living in Boston, although he was in our band, and so kind of made connections in Berkeley and the, and the New England Conservatory where he went to school, which pretty much immediately feeds into New York when all those kids that graduate from school. So you have, we, we kind of like moved around, and you know, you kind of spread out, and you meet all these folks, and... And you couple that with um, my studies with the pianist Art Landy, 
and uh, the trumpet player Ron Miles, working with him a lot. And you have like a lot of people are, are involved with the Ron Miles Art Landy scene in Colorado, and a lot of folks in New York are connected to that. So there's just a big there's a big group of people that have, that have gone through Colorado or touch you know kind of connected, touch base with people out there, or just all of us on the road. So it's it's really uh I guess that's the, the best way to explain it. It's it's funny because I don't know if the, the people I guess there is a Colorado thing. I don't know if there's a Colorado sound or or uh, or specifically or what, but there's but there's something going on there with the, uh, where people are connecting with a lot of other people. Uh, I've talked to a bunch of different bands over the years who are kind of considered uh, jazz groups but play a lot in the jam band arena and uh, everybody from, you know, Medeski, Martin, and Wood to more recent uh, stuff from Rudder and people like that. And um, it's always been my contention that, that there seems to be a natural audience for improvisation. And I think it was the guys in Rudder who said, and I hope it was them because I'm about to attribute this to them, who said that it was much easier for... Um, folks who were jam band listeners to accept the kind of jazz aesthetic than it was for people on the jazz side to accept the jam band elements. And I wonder what your experience, you know, kind of having lived a lot in, in both those worlds, if they're even different, but what your experience has been of that. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, I just, I don't know who's on, who's on the jazz side. I guess it's, I guess I would agree with that in that the jam band audience is like younger, I guess. It's a pretty young audience. I mean, I don't know if it even exists anymore. And I thought it kind of has just all blended together by now. But I guess when, like, in the in the mid '90s, late '90s, when they were like they started saying the jam band scene, you know, there was like all these kind of bands. I think that that was a really young audience. So sure, they were open to to good players and good improvisers. So when you when you figured out that like you know guys like Charlie Hunter or like Herbie Hancock or you know like whoever you know we're just so so super killing you know I think it was easy for people to cross over yeah um for jazz audience you know I don't know like I guess that 
people that consider themselves a jazz audience, I don't even know who they are. Maybe they're older. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't really know anyone that says, I just listen to jazz. And um, maybe the, the only people who do say that are such purists. Um, and what they're, you know, at, at heart, they're, they're probably not as much as anything else at all, you know. Because most people, even even guys that are really into jazz, you know, or, or work in the jazz field or, you know, the, the jazz media or something, I mean, just like, you know, we're doing we're doing a jazz interview, but you've already told me that you were in way into prog rock, and, you, know, you know what I mean? So, it's like, I, th I think most of us have other backgrounds, so, so you know, I, I think that, Having played in both worlds, like with Charlie Hunter, is a good a good example. Playing in both, and with my band, I'm doing a, a little bit in both, and and uh, I think that, I think it's just good music makes sense to people. You know, there's um, it's it's nice to be able to play dynamically, right? To play ballads, play to play different styles, and that's what uh, I think a jazz listener a jazz listener accepts. You know, is, is a really uh, nice because they accept you. you taking the show to different dynamic levels. And sometimes a jam band listener just wants a certain thing, something, you know, maybe something funky. Or, you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. It, it, the whole thing, honestly, is mysterious and complicated to me. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I appreciate any, any, uh, all, everybody, you know, and that's, that's what's important. If people like the music, I'm, I'm, I'm psyched. So. Yeah, and you, you began that response by saying that you thought it had all kind of mixed together, which to me is maybe the most hopeful thing of all. And that's the idea here, right, is that people just just accept good music and open their minds about different kinds of music that they haven't that they haven't been exposed to as much and uh and also support uh you know the, the musicians who are who work hard to, to create this stuff. Um, and overall just to support live music live music and, and that we remember how important it is and, and, and how uh and how hard it is, you know, to, to always have it out there. It's not a given, you know. It's not an automatic right for people to have live music, you know. So, so uh, that, the hope is that all these music lovers just get together and, and, and support stuff like they're doing. Eric, in addition to uh, the band that's uh, featured on Hush Money, I know you're involved in several other projects. Would you like to tell folks about what some of the other things that you're up to are? Sure. Um, Let's see. Well, next week I'm going out on the road with Trevor Dunn. Trevor is a great bassist, um, composer, uh, even a singer. And uh, he uh, was, um, if people don't know, he was part of the band Mr. Bungle, which is kind of a cult hit, and also the band The Phantomaz. Both bands uh, featured Mike Patton, who uh, also sang in a band called Faith No More. Trevor's worked a lot with John Zorn and all kinds of great folks and so Trevor's got a band called Mad Love that I'm a part of, and it's, uh, we're going out on the road next week, so uh, that's our first tour, and we have a new record on Ipecac Records. Um, what else am I doing? I'm going to, uh, to Europe with Jessica Lurie, saxophonist, uh, uh, who was once from Seattle, now I'm in New York. Uh, I play regularly with uh, the singer Aaron McKeown. She's one of my favorite artists, and she uh, has a new record on Rachel's Dave Records uh, called Hundreds of Lions. It's a great record. Um, I, I'm thinking of my regular bands here. I've been working with Ron Miles a fair amount, and uh, Charlie Hunter and Ron Miles and Rudy Royston and I just had a great 
two nights of gigs out in Colorado last week, and we're going to do something in New York this spring. Uh, and I'm working with Ellery Esquilin, the tenor player, like doing improvising. And we have a trio with Allison Miller that was going to be working this spring. So, man, so many, so many wonderful things, so many great folks, and, uh, and, uh, I guess the most, you know, the biggest, the thing that got my, my relatives the most excited is that I worked with Noah Jones, Paul. You know, and so like, it was funny, like all my aunts and cousins and uncles were all like, calling me up. Hey, you worked with Noah Jones. I <laughs> 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 made them happy, I made them, and that was a great, great experience too. She's awesome, and has a great band. Well, that all sounds incredible, man. It's, uh, that sounds like you've really, uh, you've found your way into a, a bunch of really diverse settings, which is, sounds exciting. Oh, thanks, man. I, could, I couldn't be happier. I couldn't feel luckier and, you know, about it. And it's, um, it's just a treat, you know, to live in New York and meet these, meet these great folks and all these killer players, good people, and everybody's so supportive of, every, of each other here. You know, that's, that's, the, that's what I find to be the most, my favorite thing about New York is the musician community, and that everybody's so sweet and comes to every gig and supports everybody and finds ways to hire people and finds ways to pay people and and uh, and it's, it's just a treat. And, and also, it's, it's just it's just an amazing thing to have, to be able to play with all these different kinds of people and all these different settings and different kinds of clubs and different genres of music. It, it keeps me uh, it keeps me happy and keeps me on my toes. So, love that. My guest is Eric Deutsch. Uh, he's got an album out called Hush Money, which definitely deserves your attention. Uh, I've really enjoyed the record, Eric, and uh, also really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for coming on the show, and I hope you'll come back again. Hey, I would love to come back anytime, and it's very nice of you to have me. Thanks for all, uh, all the complimentary uh, things you said about the record. I appreciate it.
That's Eric Deutsch from his new recording, Hush Money. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at iTunes and at thejazzsession.com, where you'll find links to uh, network with the show and various kinds of social media. You'll also find Amazon.com links to purchase the recordings heard on this program, and you'll find a donate button if you'd like to give a little back to the Jazz Session. My thanks to the Respect Sextet online at respectsextet.com for recording the show's theme. Also thanks to Dave Rabel for designing the logo. Please go out and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.